Okay, so we're doing this homily series on the state of the church. And uh, last week, remember, I gave a little bit of a table of contents of, of where we've been, where we're going. So we started with talking about the purpose and the mission of the church, which is the Catholic church that Jesus establishes. Um, last, last week, we looked at this church in the Bible and how does the church behave throughout the Bible and not just the Christian church, but even the church in like the Old Testament, the people of God in the Old Testament. This week, we're talking about the church throughout history. Um, and then next week, we'll look at our current situation and then we'll finish with a future forecast. So the, the, the church throughout history is obviously it's like a huge thing. You know, we're talking about 2000 years. Uh, Jesus established, we teach, he established his church um, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where he gives Peter this office, uh, he changes his name to rock, and he said, on this rock, I build my church, and he gives him this office, the office of the papacy, ultimately. That's in Matthew 16, so that's around the year, like AD 27, 28, somewhere in that range, maybe give or take a couple of years. So we're talking about just about 2,000 years of history, uh, which, so you can't, you can't really cover that in a 20-minute in a homily, so it's, it's like a really big task. Um, but at the same time, we, we, can, we can look at some things um, within that and to see, kind of set the stage for next week, uh, we could say. So anyway, so what, what's going on? Remember, remember, the church is established by Jesus uh, for a purpose, and that purpose is to be a light for the world, that the church on earth would, would radiate his divine light. In other words, that people would know there's a place where I know that I can encounter God uh, because I see it radiating from this, this church which may or may not be like a local building, but the church uh, in a kind of corporate way that, that this institution that Jesus establishes, which of course is, is constituted of a leader and other leaders beneath him and other leaders. And then of course the, the, the majority is like the lay faithful, what we call it. Uh, so anyway, this, this purpose of, of, of radiating the divine light, which is gonna help people see clearly better, uh, see better more clearly, uh, but then also will hopefully attract people and make people want to join this church. That's, that's the desire. That's the, 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 the intention of Jesus. And when people come to join this church, the church has one primary task, which is to make disciples, to make people or to form people, to teach them in such a way that they begin to live like Jesus in their actions, in their words, even in their thoughts, that they could think like Jesus so that they could eventually imitate him, that their life would be an imitation of the life of Jesus. That's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. So that's like the church's primary task. And, and as the church carries out this primary task, again, the goal is that people, both members and non-members, would have this understanding that it's within the church that I can know God, that I can love God, and that I can serve God in the church to know him, right? They're like, this is the incredible thing that, that it's not like, we're not just here to serve a God who is distant and so far beyond us that, you know, like hopefully he sees us and, you know, he, our, our sacrifices, our offerings are appeasing to him. It's, it's that, no, it's the God that we serve. It is a God who draws close to us because he wants to have a relationship with us. Like this is, this is the thing that, that the Christian faith is not some abstract ideal, but it is an encounter with a real person, Jesus, who is alive and who wants to have a relationship with us. So it's in the church that I can know him, and it's above all in the church that I can know him through the sacraments, where he gives us his body, his blood, his soul and divinity in the Holy Eucharist, where he, he brings us into his identity when we're baptized, we can encounter him in these deep ways, the, the deep mercy that he has to give to us in the sacrament of reconciliation. It's through the sacraments that I have direct access to God, that I can truly know him, and that I can love him. How do I love him? By keeping his commandments. He says to us in the gospels, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
You say that you love me? Well, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You are my friends, he says, if you do what I command you. In fact, this is part of what it is to be a disciple or to form disciples. He says, go and baptize people and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So part of being a disciple and part of being a friend of Jesus, part of loving him is keeping his commandments. Whatever he commands, we do that because he is, he is so incredible and his generosity for us is so good. Like, how could I not obey him? So to keep his commandments and then a place where I can serve him or another way we talk about serving him is worshiping him. That we worship him not on our own terms, but we worship him according to the worship that he gives to us. Which is what? Well, at the Last Supper, he says, do this in memory of me, offer this in memory of me. What happens at the Last Supper? Ultimately, it's a mass, right? It's, it's where he offers himself in union with his passion on the cross. So by worshiping him according to the worship that he has given to us, we do that here at the mass and only at the mass. And so, so, so the church being a place where I can know him through the sacraments, I can love him by keeping his commandments and following the laws of his church, and I can serve him by coming to mass and participating in the worship of God that he has given to us. This is this incredible thing. Last week, we looked at the, church, or at the Bible and we said, okay, well, how does, how does this play itself out? How, how is it that the people of God actually live out this, this command of God to love him above all things. And we saw last week that there's like this mixture of good and bad where there, there are always going to be and there always have been people who are faithful to the Lord, faithful to his commandments, worshiping him as he lays it out, following his commandments, uh, becoming friends of his. But then also within the church, we see that, that there are people who don't always get it. There are people who, who willingly break his commandments. There are people who abandon him. There are people who betray him. Of course, we know this because... But, we look at Judas, and we see how Judas, one of his 12 closest friends, abandons him and betrays him and hands him over to be killed. We see, actually, along the way that, that 11 of the 12 apostles abandon Jesus by the time he gets to the cross. There's only one who remains faithful to him. So we, we see that, that within the church, even in biblical times, there's this, this strange mystery where Jesus, he knows all these things as he calls these men, as he calls these people to follow him. He knows all of these things that, that they're going to abandon him, that they're not going to get it, that they're going to break his commandments. And yet he calls them anyways. In some ways, you could say he calls them anyways as like a way to highlight that, that there are bad ways to follow him. There are incorrect ways to follow him, and there are good and correct ways to follow him, righteous ways to follow him, which ultimately culminates in being faithful to him on the cross. So that's, that's like how we see the church playing out. So now we can, we can say, okay, well, how does the church play out through history? How does, how does this look? Now, uh, to talk about the church throughout history, we have to, we have to begin by acknowledging that the next week, this week and next week are going to be a bit uncomfortable. Because as we look at the church throughout history, there are some things that, that are going to hit maybe a little bit too close to home for some of us. That, that in some ways we can talk about history and say like, yeah, no, way long ago, 2,000 years ago, this is how things played out. And, and we see 2,000 years ago that people didn't quite get it and maybe even 1,000 years, you know, but, but the thing about history is this, that as you travel through history and just look at it, you see that it just keeps getting closer and closer and closer and closer to you. There's really nothing you can do about that, right? So, so as we look at history, like, yes, we'll begin way back then, but we'll slowly make our way forward. We can't look at every period in, in history. We're going to look at just maybe a couple of main things as well as like a general pattern. But we're going to see that history just keeps getting a little bit closer. And next week, of course, we're going to talk about our current situation, which is going to be maybe even a little bit more uncomfortable. So just to acknowledge that, um, because what we see ultimately is that the pattern that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament 
is ultimately an accurate pattern for what we see throughout history. And that pattern is this, that, that the people of God, whenever God speaks to them and gives them commandments and, and tells them to follow a certain way of life, the people of God always begin with a real sense of eagerness, excitement, of like, God has spoken. He has shown me how I can maintain a good relationship with him. And that's, that's incredible. And so I'm eager to share in that. We see that in the Bible. We see that in the early days of the church, the very early days of the church. For this first couple hundred years, we see this, a, a kind of eagerness to share the gospel an excitement about going into the world and telling people what God has done in the person of Jesus, which ultimately is like to go into the world and tell people like people, especially who are lost, people who are belittled, people who seem to have no value in the eyes of society. The church, its leaders and members are eager to go into the world and to tell them like, hey, you matter to God. And let me tell you how much you matter to him, that he sent his son, his only one, the one whom he loved, he sent that son to die for you so that you could be rescued from the powers of Satan. There's an eagerness and excitement to do this, a faithfulness to God, mostly. I'm just like, can you believe that he's done this, that he's called us to share in this incredible life? And so because of this, what happens? Because of this excitement, the church grows. And to add to the, the excitement of this, to add to maybe a little bit of you know, the mystery of it, actually, is that in these early days of the church, there's actually heavy persecution because not everybody is excited about the, the Christian movement. Not everybody is excited about what God has done in the person of Jesus because they don't believe it. And so as the, the, the gospel is being proclaimed, there are lots of people persecuting Christian people. There are lots of people who are killing Christians because they believe in Jesus. And yet what happens these members of the early church, they're not afraid of death. And that's attractive to people who are deathly afraid of death. So when they see these members of this new movement, how they're willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus, how they're willing to die even for the sake of Jesus, to laugh in the face of death, because they know that death is unlocking for them this new eternal life where there is no suffering and there is no death. For people to see that on the outside looking in, it's like, man, I want that. And so fascinating thing is that in spite of the persecution, the church continues to grow. And what happens as the church continues to grow, eventually society becomes more accepting of the church. Not only more accepting, but eventually Christianity becomes legal. And not only legal, but eventually the Roman Empire makes Christianity its official religion. And so things change a lot, actually. When Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, which is the biggest empire in the world at the time, when that happens, those who are members of the leaders of the church, they take on a different kind of status. You see, before, when the Christians were being persecuted and killed because of their Christian faith, it wasn't necessarily a desirable thing to be a leader in the church because being a leader in the church, being a, one of the popes or being one of the bishops or one of the priests, it meant what? It meant that there was a big target on your chest. And if anyone hated the Christian movement, they were going to come for you because you're one of the leaders. And they were going to do everything they could to torture you, to try to get you to turn away from Jesus. And so they tortured the early leaders of this, of this church as well as the other members. But now, when the church becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, the clergy have a kind of status, a kind of influence. And with influence comes power. And we know this from our basic human experience is that when people are given power, especially a lot of it, there's a strong temptation toward what? Toward corruption. It doesn't happen across the board necessarily, but whenever people are given power, there is a temptation 
toward an abuse of that power, toward a manipulation of that power. And so when that power comes, what happens? Corruption comes. Not universally across the board with all of the leaders of the church, but it becomes fairly widespread among the early days of the church. Once it becomes this official religion of the Roman Empire, it becomes fairly widespread that the leaders of the church, the clergy, become very corrupt. They begin leading people astray by their behavior, by their words. They lead them astray, away from faithfulness to God and his commandments, away from faithfulness to Jesus, and toward their own sort of thing, where they engage in immoral behavior and false teaching. But what happens in spite of this is that the Lord, he always keeps faithful people, just like with the the apostles, right? Eleven of them abandon Jesus, but one of them remains faithful. And among the rest of the followers of Jesus, of course, we know that there are holy women. Mary, Jesus' own mother, remains faithful to him while he's on the cross and is at the cross. Mary Magdalene, we know, is faithful to Jesus. We know there are other holy men and women who are followers of Jesus who remain faithful to him, even though some of the leaders abandon ship or, or lead people astray. And so within this, these, these days of the church, throughout church history, whenever leaders go astray, there are also other leaders and other members of the church who remain faithful to the Lord. And so the Lord raises up people like St. Augustine or St. Augustine, you maybe have heard him called before. We, we, as Catholics, we call him St. Augustine. He's, he's this monumental figure who pursues the truth, who pursues righteousness, and so within the church, there, there begins to be this like battle. This is, this is a strange thing, that within the church of Jesus, there, there is like sort of mysteriously ordained by God to be this battle between good and evil, between righteousness and wickedness, where there are holy leaders and holy members of the church who want to pursue and maintain faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the gospel which the church had already begun to proclaim. Even while within that same church, there are other leaders who have gone astray, who have, who have wandered into corruption. This battle between good and, right, good and wrong, uh, faithfulness and unfaithfulness to God. And there are holy saints that are raised up. Like I said, Augustine, St. Saint, uh, Benedict, these, these holy and, and righteous men that, that God tends to lift up, and women as well, that God lifts up as examples for people. And when people see the light of their holiness radiate from them, it becomes attractive. And so they want to remain faithful to him. And this is the pattern of history, that some leaders will come along and lead people off course. And then the Lord will inspire holy saints to bring them back on the course, the course toward eternal life. Saints like Francis of Assisi and Claire, saints like Dominic and Catherine of Siena, these holy and righteous men and women who remain faithful to the Lord and they always do a good job of bringing, straying humanity back to its original holiness. And that's the pattern that goes throughout history. And then in the, in the 1500s, something radical happens. And this is like, so we're going to talk about two co- sort of pretty, I'd say, monumental moments in history. In the 1500s, this radical thing happens called the Protestant Reformation, where Martin Luther and John Calvin and a few others, they decide not to stray from the truth, but they begin to rebel against the church that Jesus Christ establishes. They openly rebel. They protest the church that God has established. This is where we get the word Protestants. They are protesting against the church of God by protesting against the authority and by breaking from the consistent worship that had been present throughout Christian history for the first 1,500 years. They protest against this church and they bring with them many, many members of this church. 
where there is a massive exodus from the church that Jesus established to these other people who are living in a state of protest against this church. It's a sad and a tragic thing because it causes confusion among all kinds of people, all kinds of Christians are just like, what are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to do? We see the corrupt clergy over here. We also see holy people here. We see the pride of, of, of all kinds of different people. It's like, what are we supposed to believe? We, were, we knew that within the church was a place that I could know, I could love, and I could serve God. But now these other people are saying that I don't have to serve him. I don't have to worship him in that way any longer so I can worship him in this other way. Right? Of course, this is a problem that carries through to our own day and our own time, of course, right? Because we still live with all of these different Christian denominations who say and profess that they worship God correctly, including us, right? So like it leads to all kinds of confusion and we can get into more of that next week. But the problem is, is that, that this causes a massive rift, a massive division within the people of God. So now the church has been split but not just split, it's that one group of people has totally broken themselves off from the church that Jesus established. But even within that, the Lord continues to raise up holy men and women, people like St. Charles Borromeo, people like St. Ignatius of Loyola, Francis Xavier, um, other people that the Lord raises up to what? To prevent people from leaving so that they can stay on the path towards salvation. And that, that goes on for several hundred years. And then something happens in the Catholic Church in the 1960s. We call it the Second Vatican Council. Throughout history, there have been different times where, where the church has needed to clarify some of its doctrine, where, where people are questioning, it, what do we believe about this? Or what do we believe about this? And so the bishops of the world, the leaders of the church, have to get together and they have to decide, like, okay, what is it that the church, what is it that God teaches about this particular thing? And so they'll get together and they do this. There's one that met, or a couple that met in the Vatican, in Rome. So they get together at the Second Vatican Council, and this council makes a big impact on the church of God. There's, there, there are things that flow from the council, and then there are things that flow from what flows from the council. And those things are ultimately massive misinterpretations of what the council taught. And so because of this, more widespread confusion and lots of people left the church. A lot of you saw this with your own eyes. In the 1960s, lots of people, 70s, 80s, and 90s, lots of people leave the church because there is massive misinterpretation about the consistent doctrine that has always been taught by the church, where priests and bishops start to teach falsely about the doctrines that have always been present so that people begin to wonder, I don't know what's true. Priests begin to offer mass their own way where they, they have no qualms about breaking from the consistent worship that the church has handed down to them. There are all kinds of problems. And then on top of that, or, or maybe alongside of that, the, the world learns that many members of the clergy, again, it's not a majority by any means, but many members of the clergy have been living, in, uh, they have been living corrupt and immoral lives, causing harm even, grave harm to people, especially to children, unfortunately. And what does this do? This causes the lay faithful who are, who are just sort of watching and taking it all in, it causes them to wonder, like, something is seriously wrong here. It's true. Something is seriously wrong here. We'll get more into that next week. But the results of that, as history continues to come up to our day and age, is that what? Is that the church throughout history has shown corruption, has shown abuse of power, abuse of authority, abuse of people, even while there are holy men and women that the Lord has raised up to keep people on the path towards salvation, 
There's this, this, this big problem that we continue to see throughout history. And like I said, it's not a majority, but, but anytime some grave harm comes to people, of course, it's going to stand out more than anything else. Right? So what did we see in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and into our day? We saw a dramatic decrease in mass attendance. We saw a dramatic decrease in people going to confession because they don't think they need to confess their sins to that priest who's probably corrupt anyway. We saw dramatic problems in the church that we continue to see today where there's false teaching. We don't know what to believe anymore because this priest teaches this and this priest teaches that. This bishop says this and this bishop says that. This pope said this and this pope says that. We don't know what to believe anymore, right? This is, this is the church throughout history and maybe it's magnified in a particular way today. Why? Because, because of media, ultimately. You see, back in the day, if I lived in France and there were corrupt clergy living in Italy, I didn't really know about it. But now today, if I live in France and there's corrupt clergy in Italy or in the United States, I hear about it within 30 seconds of it happening, of it being revealed. And I'm not saying that it's wrong that it's happening. I'm just saying that this is an additional factor that sort of magnifies all of the different problems that are going on in the church today. And yet what's fascinating, this is the last thing, what's fascinating about all of this is that we see the problems, we see the chaos, we see the confusion throughout history, not just in our day, but throughout history. And yet somehow the church still stands. Why? Because the church has been divinely instituted by Jesus, and he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's one story of Napoleon Bonaparte as he was going through his French Revolution and causing all kinds of havoc in the world and in the church. He was speaking to one of the cardinals of the church, and he said, don't you know, cardinal, that I have great plans to destroy the church? And this cardinal responded by saying, don't you know, Napoleon, that the clergy have basically been trying to destroy the church for the last 1,800 years and haven't been able to? What makes you think that you're going to be able to do this? And this isn't like a triumphalistic thing. Like, isn't it great how great we are as members of the church? I know my own sinfulness. I know your sinfulness. You know your own sinfulness. We get this. And yet there's this mystery that's at play that even in spite of our sinfulness, and in spite of the grave sinfulness that we've seen throughout, play itself out throughout church history, in spite of all of that, this church is, in, is divinely instituted by God. And it will last because the Lord wants a place for his people to know him, to love him, and to serve him. He wants a place for his people to constantly be redirected and reoriented back toward the path that leads to salvation.